Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I did not get results, they did not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Ari Gronich with Create a New Tomorrow. We are here today with Norman Plotkin. He is a hypnotherapist, an author, a coach. He's been a health committee consultant for the California legislature, representing um, California physicians. He's owned private lobbying firms in nation states. And this is something I really want to talk to him about because I love government so much, as you all know. So I just wanted to put that out there that he, he, he has been one of the evil ones. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> lobbying in our nation's capital. I don't know. We'll see what we'll see what that that tells us. So Norman, why don't you tell us a little bit deeper about who you are, why you became who you are, and and this journey of going from a legislature and consultant to transitioning into clinical hypnotherapy. I mean, this is crazy. It's crazy talk, you know, what most people would consider. So let's let's just get into it, Norman. Uh, tell us about yourself and how you became who you are. Yeah, long, strange trip it's been, right? So I, uh, you know, I grew up on a ranch and I, I didn't go to college right away. I went in the Marine Corps and then I got out of the Marine Corps and I worked in the oil fields and in a rock plant where I made little rocks out of big rocks like Fred Flintstone. And and uh, then I was doing construction line work, uh, climbing telephone poles, thinking that the world looked up to linemen. And to some extent they do, but uh, I... Uh, ran into a, a, an experience. My brother was killed in a car accident and I, I reevaluated everything. And uh, I, I shut down what I was doing then and uh, went back to college. And I was in a hurry because now I'm 25 and feeling behind. And so uh, I went to community college. I did speech and debate and student government, transferred to the university and graduated in three years with a bunch of internship credits because uh, I had you know, I went to school in Sacramento where the capital was and uh, and got all these internships. The uh, government chair on my exit interview looked at the number of 18 units of internships said, that'll never happen again. You know, I said, well, doesn't everybody, isn't that why you come to Sacramento, right? So at any rate, um, I got within the first semester, I got a job as a clerk in the state assembly and uh, from clerk to consultant, I ran campaigns. Um, I became a committee consultant. Uh, then I was hired by the Medical Association to lobby. I lobbied doing that for several years and then, and then struck out on my own and had my own lobbying firm. 
And I love the strategy, you know, as a Marine, former Marine, I love the strategy. I love the politics. I love, well, not so much the politics, but you have to understand the politics to understand how to get to the policy. I love the strategy and, and, the, and the, uh, you know, the development of public policy. So um, I did that and it's, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it, it was intense at times. Uh, the money and uh, the politics, it just, uh, it's the unsavory part that in the end, when I had my own firm, I represented uh, oil, uh, automotive and energy, but it was small oil. You know, I had the California Independent Petroleum Association and it wasn't big oil. And I had, you know, the automotive aftermarket. And oftentimes we fought with the big car companies, right? And and energy, I had the energy service providers against the monopoly utilities. So so on on you know on its face, it, it looked like I had all of the uh old, you know, the the um the power industries and whatnot, but it was really the underdog guys. But at any rate, after 25 years of that, um, uh, it, it made me sick. The stress, the just the dirty politics, you know, that I tried to stay away from, but it's it's ever present. And so uh, I had cancer, I had papillary carcinoma, and uh, I had a radical thyroidectomy and lymph, lymph node resection. And that, you know, I just wanted to get back to normal. And I didn't realize at the time that my normal was what made me sick. And so that began uh, what's been an eight, nine year spiritual journey and awakening. And so after it came back six months later, I had to have another round of radiation. uh, I began to reevaluate. A friend of mine had gotten out of politics and opened a yoga studio. She took me through therapeutic yoga for cancer. Um, she taught me how to meditate, which, you know, the, the, the tools, the gifts I was given that my mind, you know, the, my analytical mind was great for all the things I'd been doing, but it's very difficult to get past in order to, to, you know, to do real meditation. And so I have a, I, actually, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. I have a question about that. You were a Marine and now you're learning to meditation. Where did those two things combine? Because I I know a lot of Marines, I know a lot of Navy SEALs, and they're meditating constantly during during conflict. I mean, that's how they get through the conflict. Did you find that there was any correlation there between the meditating and and your experience in Marines? Well, the, the power of the mind and the things that let me get, you know, help me get through my experience as a Marine were, were the kind of things that led me to hypnotherapy. Uh, it wasn't until later uh, that when I learned how to meditate that I realized I was using breathing techniques uh, before. You know, the Navy SEALs teach box breathing, you know, five seconds in, five seconds out, five seconds in, five seconds out, building a box. And I, I, I know that now, but when you're in it, I, I, I didn't understand it at the time. What I needed to do was get control of my overactive mind. I, I, I was faced with, you know, a life-threatening disease. And, and it's never just about the cancer. My, my marriage didn't survive it. Uh, you know, all the things I'd worked so hard for, my big house, my fast cars, all these things that I thought were important really weren't. But it's in that transition where you think you're losing the things that were important to you that, make, that makes it difficult. So I learned 
to breathe. I learned to meditate. I learned Ayurveda and my dosha and how to eat for my dosha. And um, I learned a lot about myself. And then uh, teachers began to appear. I read Wayne Dyer, The Power of Intention, uh, Carolyn Meese, uh, Anatomy of the Spirit, Deepak Chopra's Quantum Healing, uh, Joe Dispenza, uh, so many uh, just began to appear and my interest uh, moved in that direction. And I, I really the power of intention, Wayne, Wayne Dyer, I saw him speak in Pasadena in 2015, very powerful, saw Carolyn Meese at the same time, Joe Dispenza. And uh, I really wanted to put myself into the service of others. It became a serious thing. And so I, you know, I walked away from the lobbying thing. I shut down the firm. I, I moved to LA and, um, and initially I had taken a, a job as a, as a, uh, executive director of a trade association, which was akin to what I'd been doing. And after a year of that, it, 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 it you know, I just, I didn't renew the contract and I, I began to look in a new direction and I was led, I was led to, I was looking at coaching and I saw this one program where these psychologists, they said, well, you, just, you to get an edge, add hypnosis to your coaching program. <clears throat> and I said to myself, well, I thought that was fa fairly interesting, but I wasn't going to go to a one week deal. So it turns out the nationally accredited college of hypnotherapy is right there in Los Angeles. I was in Burbank and it's in Tarzana. And uh, I met somebody who'd gone and uh, I, I signed up. And so it was really the power of the mind, <clears throat> my interest in the power of the mind, but from early on as a Marine. And even before that, you know, on the ranch uh, working with large animals and whatnot. And then, um, and then my desire to put myself into the service of others. So this, this was the crossroads of the power of the mind and service to others, which led me to, uh, to want to open up my hypnotherapy firm. Nice. I, I noticed, uh, as I stated to you before we started recording, uh, I saw you and I went to Hypnosis Motivation Institute, uh, uh, <laughs> both uh, went there and, and got our clinical hypnotherapy certificates and and so on and it's a great school this was the uh, this was the first school for hypnotherapy in the country uh now there's you know tons of them i don't think any of them are are quite as good as uh, as hmi but um tell me something when when you were deciding to to transition into coaching and deciding to transition into the consulting you know, you've authored three books. What did you decide was the point of the three books? Like each one I'm sure has its own point, but how did you, how did you decide the passion that you would put into those, that content, into those words? Because a lot of people want to write a book, but they don't know if that book is going to sell. They don't know if it's going to be read. They just are passionate about putting their brain onto paper. And so out of the enormous amount of experience that you have, how did you decide those? Because I think all three of those made number one bestseller. Is that correct? Uh, two of them are bestsellers. The other was, was brand new. So, okay. Two of them are, are bestsellers. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the content of the books and what it is that you're trying to teach people. Sure. So I always wanted to write a book and it's the, getting to that focused place where 
what what's the story you want to tell? What what's the value uh, to the reader? And so I tried really hard for three years to write a book about the cancer experience, and I I got nowhere. So I hired a coach. I I attended the author incubator program, and the, having the ability to focus, you know, I who knew that I was unsuccessful for three years because I was trying to write more than one book at once, you know what I mean? So uh, getting really clear on who my reader was and what my message was, was the upshot of having a, a coach who's helped, you know, literally you know, thousands of people write books. And so um, it became the, the cathartic memoir of the cancer experience. And so uh, I was able to organize it into the seven proven steps to healing and recovery. I, I was really moved on uh, Thursday. I was getting ready to cook and family and friends and whatnot. And I got an email from a, from a guy who said, I want to thank you it's, because of your book. I'm on the fifth month of a chemo holiday. And it's really an upshot. My, my son, who was 14 at the time, saw a five-star review on Amazon of my, of my book and uh, from a woman who bought it for her mother who had breast cancer and she was it made a difference in her life and she was very grateful and he screenshotted it and texted it to me and and my response was how cool is that now if one person is better because they read my book then the whole cancer experience was worth it because when you go through these things you look for meaning and why is a big question and I, I no longer ask the why and I understand the meaning uh, the the experience of cancer is there's a message in it and and it whispers initially and then it yells and if you don't hear the yell you, you get a new assignment <laughs> which is just a nice way of saying that you know it's, it doesn't go well for you so um, I I didn't hear the whisper but I heard the yell and I reorganized my life and I put myself into the service of others and so the first book became about my experience and then I read other books like Kathy Turner's Radical Remission, or Lisa Rankin, Dr. Lisa Rankin's um, uh, Mind Over Medicine. And I, I, I was fascinated that the people who survive all kind of do some of the same things. And how important is it to share? Because when you're in it, it's disjointed, and uh, the, the thousand people have something to say, and you get 10 minutes with your doctor, and they don't, you know, 10 o'clock when the questions really close in on you like the walls there's no one there and so uh i gathered the seven things that i thought were super important that i did and turns out others who have survived cancer have done and i put it into a book where you know take charge of your cancer it's 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 pointed to men women you know they gather around they, they're there for each other they you know they call their best friend and have a good cry men men can feel isolated, and uh, you know they don't they don't go to the doctor. Women go to the doctor every year because they're a woman, right? And so men tend not to to do, and they put things off until they're bad. So so the first book was about um, was really about helping people who are in the middle of it. I wanted to call it the unwrapped gift, but my publisher said, you know, your readers who are in the middle of it aren't going to see it as a gift. She said, how long did it take you? I said, yeah, it was a few years. So. Um, so that was that was the first book, and it and it felt really good, and uh, and it's really about a, a message of of hope and 
that for people, when you're in the middle of it, you've got the skin in the game and you really need to be your own captain. And that's the take charge. Yeah. So I want to know what the, what these seven proven steps are, because so I was people, a lot of people don't know. I, was, I used to be on the advisory board for a long time of a cancer nonprofit called Marathon of Miracles. And, and we were mostly alternative healthcare and, and we would help people get solutions that were not necessarily the chemos and the radiations and the toxins and the, and the medicines and pills, but things like Gerson, you know, protocol with uh, coffee enemas. I mean, these are the things that people don't know that they really, really want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Drink, pairing a juice, I, drinking bitter green juice, right? That was something that people don't know that they don't want. So oh, yeah. what are the, what are the seven proven techniques and let's just go one by one and then kind of talk them out. All right. I've done Gerson. I've done granny, you know, granny Smith, apple juice, uh, you know, three days, nothing but, uh, and those, those are powerful. Those are powerful methods, but, um, the seven steps begins with radically change your diet. We have what's known today in America as the SAD, yep. the standard American diet. And it's making people sick, processed foods, high fat, fast foods. Uh, it's really important to eat to live and eat foods that are not processed. And so there's a whole, there's a whole chapter on it, but the high level is eat to live. And so radically change your diet. Right, but Americans love to live to eat not, not eat to live. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're unwilling to forego the fried chicken from Kentucky fried or, or the MSG from places, you know, I mean, they're unwilling to do that. So how, how do we explain this in a way that somebody can say, um, I'm going to do that because that sounds a lot better than having my organs eaten from the inside out. Right. So, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I deal with people who smoke cigarettes and the, and the package on it says the surgeon general says this could kill you and they do it anyway. So, uh, so that's one of the chapters too, the subconscious mind. I'll get to that in a second, but uh, because, you know, change is hard to change one thing in your life is hard to change seven things is you know, nearly impossible for some. So radically change your diet, learn to meditate, getting control of your self-talk is super important because you're listening and so is every cell in your body. So meditation and getting control of your active mind, the mind can be the master or the slave. And so, you know, we, we have a tendency to externalize our power. And when we realize that internalizing our power gives us much more likelihood that we can have exert something uh, on the external world because control is illusory. So that meditation and the self-talk are super important. Uh, spirituality, it doesn't matter what, but all paths lead through the divine. Whether you go to a mosque or a church, whether you're Buddhist, Taoist, there's a belief in something larger than ourselves it is really, really important to connecting with humanity and connecting to something larger than ourselves. So spirituality, all paths lead through the divine. 
then, you know, life is a contact sport. None of us get out of it alive. We get nicked up along the way. And oftentimes what we do is we suppress our emotions and repress. And we have these defense mechanisms that we paper over these things. And if we don't resolve them, if, if, they, if they remain unresolved, we shove them down into our gut and they accumulate. And the trauma, trauma is cumulative. And at some point, if you've had enough trauma and you haven't resolved it and you haven't dealt with it, your subconscious mind may perceive death as the way out of the pain and start shutting down your immune system and creating dis-ease. So uh, releasing repressed emotions, super critical. Then communing with your subconscious mind. Our programming, we believe that our conscious mind is in control with analysis, reason, logic, decision-making and willpower, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. Our programming that was instilled from zero to eight years old is what the conscious mind measures every decision against. And if it doesn't comport with our programming, we will come up with a rationalization. Well, I know people who've smoked cigarettes until they're hundred and they didn't die or I'm gonna die, everyone dies, I'll be old anyway, right? So this conscious mind will come up with a rationalization. So learning to commune with your subconscious mind and specifically using hypnosis and hypnotherapy to help tweak your programming is super important. Then no one has more skin in the game than you do. It's important to listen to your doctors. It's important to show up for your appointments. It's important to do your research, but you really have to be the captain of the team. It means ask a lot of questions. Even if, even if they don't wanna have questions asked, even if they only wanna give you 10 minutes, ask for 10 more and get to the bottom of things, take charge. You know, you're gonna have specialists, a lot of them, different ones. One pokes you with a big needle, one cuts your organ out, one you know, manages your ongoing care, one manages the, uh, the, the application of, of therapeutics, whether they you know, cut, burn, and poison is, the, is what I refer to it. And I, because these are the high percentage therapies that allopathic medicine is, is taught to administer. But you are the one who needs to be the captain and don't let anybody push you around. And finally, you gotta have a reason to live. Whether it's a, a grandchild, a child, a, a, the book you wanna write or a garden patch, having a reason to live and not just not wanting to die is the love part. Fear is not wanting to die. And the more you concentrate on not wanting to die and the fear that's associated with it, the more likely you are. So having something to live for, we all do. If you just you know, fix on something that you need to accomplish. So diet, meditation, spirituality, subconscious, releasing repressed emotions, taking charge and having a reason to live. Those are the seven steps. And I didn't make any of these up. None of them are groundbreaking, uh, but the power of using each of them in concert is the thing that is gonna make the difference in your cancer experience. So did you find that when you were detoxing after the uh, initial you know, healing crisis that happens inevitably with you know, the ups and downs of, of detoxification, did you find that 
your mind changed after you were already detoxed versus changing your mind and detoxing first? Or did they have to go simultaneously? But, you know, like, what was the, the, the major difference between before and after it, just in your mindset? Because I always found that for me, when I'm clean in my body, my mind is more clean. My thoughts are more clean. The things that I think about myself are more clean. And when I'm dirty in my body, when I'm toxified, then my thoughts are toxic and my things are, you know, right? So what did you find was at the stage in which your actions and your mind made, made up, right? Because at first, your, your actions are not going to be in alignment with your mind, we get that, just get that off the shelf right at the beginning. At, the, at first, your mind and your actions are not going to be in alignment. When did you find that they became in alignment? It's a process. So initially, when getting back to normal wasn't, you know, the old normal, was, the realization that the old normal made me sick and I needed to find a new normal. That was, and that, that's when I used the power of the mind. And so it was a will thing. And as I used the power of the mind and uh, opened up to new teachers and moved my way into cleaner living, that then the mind, it became less of a struggle. So mind, body uh, in concert, and you add in spirit, mind, body, spirit, then there's a flow. You know, we get into the flow state and each, it becomes progressively easier and as Dyer said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at begin to change. And it's, it's really is true. As I clean my body, stop drinking. I, I started eating healthy and mindful of portions and, and what it is I'm taking in. Uh, and I guard my thoughts and my self-talk is always very positive. And if I catch myself, I'm not, I don't, I'm not mad. I'm not attached. I just dismiss and move on. And so, uh, you know, living in such a way, it's self-perpetuating. And the, the clean body, the clean mind, the clean actions follow. And it gets easier. So then, then there's less resistance. You know, we, we resist these things because of our programming. And the conscious mind may have every desire in the world to eat healthy. And the subconscious mind is going to put up a whole bunch of resistance because it doesn't comport with the programming. And so, so it's the resistance melts away when uh, our mind, body, and spirit are, are in concert. But for me, it began with the will, <laughs> the strong mind and the will. And then as I, and, and then as I learned and I added the, the, clean, you know, the clean living in, uh, it aided the, the, it wasn't, it was mind. It didn't have to be so strong, right? And then the actions and the resistance falls away and the actions become easier. Okay, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take this back a second. You're a Marine. You have a will that's been bred into you, trained into you, different than somebody who's not a Marine, right? So how does somebody get that will to start? What is the, like, so I always ask questions, right? So my question is, is do I wanna live? You know, do you want to live? Are you happy with your life? 
Do you, you know, like these are the kinds of questions that I would ask if, and then it's like an, if, if yes, then what, if yes, then what, if no, then what, right? So that way we break kind of it apart into little pieces. But if somebody ha doesn't have that innate will and discipline because they haven't been bred into it like you were, then what? Like how, how does somebody get that beginning? Well, that's, you know, that's what led me to the hypnotherapy uh, because you know, even, even with my strong will, and yes, it was, I had a strong will and I was attracted to the Marine Corps because of that. And then they just upped my strong will game because, you know, you go into Marine Corps boot camp and it's, I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. It's three months of very, very difficult, intense stuff. And they train you into mental toughness. So I, so I was predisposed to it and I, you know, I, I accelerated it and here's what happened though. Let me, let me tell you that you can, it can go in the other direction. I was determined to keep living. I'm going to beat this thing. I, you know, I'm going to keep doing, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And it came back and it scared me. And I knew fear for the first time because that hard headed thing that I was just going to wheel my way through it. I didn't change. I didn't make any changes. And I knew, I knew fear for the first time in my life. Kind of like this, you know, the mother of all esophageal reflux, it comes up into your mouth and you can, there's no getting rid of that taste of fear. Right. And, um, and that's where, that's where I needed to learn subtlety around that will, which was, you know, doing the same thing and ex over and over and expecting a different outcome. Well, we all know what, what uh, Albert Einstein said about that. So there are those who need help. I've needed help too. And getting to a place where you ask for the help, getting to the place where you invest in yourself to bring in, like all the best coaches have coaches. So when it came time to get serious about writing my book, I got a coach. When it came time to be serious about changing behavior, it's, you may want to see a hypnotherapist because you're worth it. All right. And so this is that I didn't just seek a hypnotherapist. I sought to capture that modality to use it for myself and in the service of others. So while we don't all have that metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, -E, right. of, of the mental toughness of a Marine, it is within our reach. And it's, uh, you know, a matter of deciding whether we're worth it to so seek that out. Yeah, I just want to say to the audience, um, if any of you are, are going through this or any trauma, any kind of medical, emotional, financial, psychological trauma, and you have people that you trust, connect with them because it is so important. This is one of the biggest lessons I always had uh, in my own life is I wanted to do it all alone, not because I had an ego about it, but because I had a massive fear of people disappointing me, taking advantage of me, not treating me the way I needed to be treated, treating me the way they were comfortable treating me. And so I never asked. So I've got a brain tumor. I've had it since I was at least seven. I've been a medical mystery my entire life. Um, and 
and I was raped and molested. And I mean, I was, you know, my, my history <laughs> is crazy. Let's just put it out. It's crazy. The, the history that I've had. And so therefore my training was anybody I love is going to either let me down, abuse me, or uh, think of me as a burden. And so if I love you, I can't ask you for help because I'm going to be a burden and then you're not going to want to be around me, right? This was the programming that I was suffering through. So I'm sure a lot of the audience members have similar kinds of questions about asking for help. Men, as you said, we just in general, it's not something that we're taught. It's not something that we don't have tribal living anymore where we're taken out by the men in the tribe on a vision quest where, you know, where we learn how to be in a tribe, tribal society. We're, we're trained to be individuals in an individual society doing individual things and hopefully maybe they help the, the collective, right? But it's not collective designed. It's not designed for the collective. So how do we get people and, and audience, I'm listening, I'm talking to you and I want him, I want Norman to talk to, to you right now. How do we get people who are suffering to ask for help? And the only thing that I've ever come up with is I need you to call me, not the other way around when I'm in the place of despair, because if I'm in despair, I'm not calling or reaching out. So it's not just the asking of asking for help, but it's the loved ones offering to sit with somebody who's suffering and not trying to change them, at least for me, not trying to change me or change where I'm at, just sitting with me so I know that they freaking love me, right? <laughs> so for you, like, what, it was, what, what do you suggest, especially for men, but men and women, asking for help? How do we get them to do it? So one of the one of the symptoms of the thyroid cancer that I had was depression. And I had a family member said, well, just go outside and get some sunshine. I'm like, oh, just go get some sunshine. Oh, of course. Why didn't I? Why didn't I think of that? I, I didn't want to ask for help because I sometimes I would get crazy stuff like that. Um, and many of us don't. My suggestion and this goes across the board for many different things, but especially in this case, get out of your head and get into your gut. You see, we have discernment. You have that gut feeling. Like we try to overthink things. And as soon as we started overthinking things, so now we're gonna com compare it to our programming and the subconscious mind is gonna derail us once again, based on you know, the, the experiences. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of folks who have that, those early traumas that they have fear of abandonment, uh, uh, you know, th these type of things. And so they push people away before they can, you know, let me rip the scab off now before you do it, right? So if, if we get to a place where we sit quiet and still, so that I teach meditation, you know, sitting quiet and still at the beginning of the day before the 75,000 thoughts that you have every day, that 90% of them are the same that were yesterday. Sitting quiet and still, you see, when we pray, we talk, talk to our God, whoever our notion of God is, or, or divinity. But when we meditate, we listen, and that's when we get answers. Could come from God, could come from our higher self, our guardian angel, whatever you want to think of it as. 
But when we get out of our head and stop trying to steer it and we get into our gut and we, we open the door to discernment, I feel like crap. I don't trust anyone. I, you know, the walls are closing in. When we, if we're going to try and think our way out of it, we're going to get into trouble. But if we go down deep into our gut and we say to our stuff, what do I need right now? What do I need right now? And just leave that, the subconscious mind, the higher self will come to answers. The friend that you can call, I was in the second round of radiation. I was sequestered for three days because I was radioactive. Couldn't let the maid in to clean. I was shut in for three days. You know, my marriage is failing. My kids are afraid. I, I waved at them through the window out of the parking lot and to see the fear on their faces was difficult. But I had my friend, John. And John and I talked. I said, John, you know, there's always been, the trail has always emerged. I've always been able to see the trail, you know, and I don't see a trail. And he talked me through it. So, you know, find your John. Go within and discern from a gut level. Yeah, it's really good advice. And, and I hope that, uh, that the audience that's listening will take that advice because it's so important to find your tribe, to find the people that are there for you in the darkest of your pain let alone the light that you shine on them, right? And, uh, you know, I'm not a very religious person. I, I was raised studying religions. You know, I, I, I'm a Jewish, Buddhist, uh, Peruvian Catholic, Native American, you know, practitioner. I mean, I practice, I, I've studied the Quran. I've studied Buddhism, I've studied Native American ceremony. And you know what's funny? about Native American ceremony. And I was thinking about this when you were talking about meditation, because I used to do a lot of sweat lodges. And in a sweat lodge, it's completely dark. It's like being in the womb and extremely hot and uncomfortable. So the only thing that you can concentrate on is trying to keep yourself cool and then allowing everything else to happen. But in Native American uh, you know, culture, they say we want to make the ceremony as hard as possible so that your life will be easy in comparison. And I really took that to heart when it came to considering the ritual, the ceremony of meditation, the ritual, the ceremony. It's hard. It's hard to meditate. We had a Zen master who used to go to the sweat lodge because he said that he could get into a meditative state like that in the sweat lodge where it would take him 20 or 30 minutes, you know, and this is a practicing Zen master for over, you know, a couple decades. And, and so, you know, I use a candle as a focal point for meditation. I use, sometimes I'll go in the shower and I'll sit down in the shower and I'll close my eyes and I'll just let the water pour over my head. And, and my meditation is, Anything that's not necessary, anything that's superfluous is washing away. It's just washing down the drain, everything, you know, like that's kind of my, my mantra in there. 
But let's, let's talk about some suggestions that you might have for somebody who's going through traumatic uh, experiences, doesn't know how to meditate. They don't know how to take their brain and turn it into a focus on a focal point because it's so erratic, right? So give us some, just some quick techniques for that. Sure. Uh, box breathing, we covered it a second ago. Five seconds in through your nose, five seconds out through your mouth, five seconds in through your nose, five seconds out. They teach it to Navy SEALs when they're in combat, when they're in the middle of it. That's what they're doing to reset their autonomic nervous system. Uh, that's a simple one. Now, um, you know, how about The Course in Miracles? It's a three volume tome, uh, uh, you know, about lots of different stuff. Uh, the Reader's Digest version is this. Love is your birthright. It resides in your heart center. Its opposite is fear. At any one time, you cannot be in love and fear at the same time. So I do regular check-ins with myself throughout the day. Am I coming from a place of love or fear? Fear is anger. I mean, the, the, range, the range of emotions that are associated with fear, you know, it's, it's clear. You know that if it's not a happy emotion, it's a fear-based emotion. So what I do is I, I teach people to have an icon, a visualization. Maybe it's a red rose. Maybe it's a red heart. Maybe it's a, the picture of their child or whatever it is. Fix something that brings love and joy and just visualize that in your heart center. And then fear falls away because you cannot be in both at the same time. So that these are simple exercises. Breathe, bring yourself back to love. The other thing is a little more uh, complex, but uh, easily understood. Viktor Frankl, you know, um, psychiatrist, Jewish psychiatrist, the concentration camp. He wrote the book, Mankind's Search for Meaning and, and developed the, the logotherapy. But his quote, between stimulus and response, between action and reaction is a space. And in that space lies your power because you get to decide what kind of human being you want to be. Now you can be reactionary and, and leak and bleed your power out to someone who just get, said something to you, or you can take a moment and decide who you want to be in that moment and maintain your power, keep your power and show up who you want to be. Your higher self knows who to show up as. So these are three very simple concepts that you can do because look at our world today. People externalize their power to persons, places and things left and right. He said, she said, he did, she did. The news said, the president, the, I mean, you're leaking power to everybody. And so the, the notion that we can control our outer world is illusion. The outer world is illusion. The only thing that is real is your inner world. And when you take stock and bring love into your heart space and define your inner world based on your higher self's understanding, this is how we maintain our sanity and live our, higher, our highest possible self. Right? This is this is 5D stuff. We're, the 3D world is dragging us down into fear. And the 5D world transcends time and moves into energy. And we, we go there through love and compassion and unity instead of duality. That transcendent, that individuation that connects us. We're all connected. 
This whole thing about six feet social distancing, this is where our heart energy picks each other up. You know, we're all connected. We can have non-local experiences where we call it synchronicity or, you know, these type of things. But we are all that tribe, that human tribe. We're all connected energetically. And we forget that and we externalize, you know, we, we, we carve ourselves out from the, our humanness and we separate ourselves and, and to a dual experience. And that person outside of me said that. She, can you believe he said that? Well, who cares? Who cares what anyone says or does? Ultimately, we have control of our inner world. And this is where our happiness and our peace and our humanity reside. Awesome. So I'm going to go back to something that is completely on a different topic now, because I think that I think the audience has, has gotten this. So one of the things that you said just now is similar to what I say, which is it's all an illusion. I say, we made this shit up. We can do better. That's really simple. This entire world, from the buildings that we see to the money that we think is so important, we created. The things that we didn't create are our bodies, the trees, the nature right around us. That was created by somebody else <laughs> or something else, either way. But what we created is all of the systems that we live by, all of the things that we think are so important that we get so riled up about as if it is the only and absolute way. So I'm gonna go back to private lobbying, Norman Plotkin. <laughs> and what I'm gonna ask you is this, should we as, a community, as a society, as people in general, try to do something about the policies and the government and the stuff that we're going through? Or should we stop trying to change the government, start changing ourselves because we are the freaking government? See, I think people think that this is some kind of outside entity that doesn't, you know, that's like away from the people. The government is away from the people. It's a separate entity from the people. But yet the people are the people who make the government, who make the laws, <laughs> all that stuff. So this is, this is where, where my questioning comes in because I've like looked at, okay, do we want to change healthcare for the better or do we just want to create a new system, start as a small thing and then put it right next to the, the, the big, you know, honking, you know, system that's ineffective and wait, wait, wait for people to show up and say, oh, hey, I like that one better, <laughs> right? Or should we go through that lobbying and that policy change in order to force it? to force the change or let it happen organically. And that's for, it doesn't matter if it's medicine or, or agriculture or systems, right? Yeah. We are, we are uh, I, I used to believe, you know, in the power, in the power to influence and, uh, and to develop public policy. 
we have devolved into a, a quagmire. It's the system is broken. There is no real distinction. The parties are the same. The, the corruption is across the boards. Uh, we, the organic approach is, is far better, but look, we've been asleep. We've been entertained by television and movies and sports and all of these things that really don't matter when we've been asleep and we've left it to someone else. And while we've left it to someone else, you know, the fox is guarding the hen house and now all the hens are dead, all right? And all we have left is the foxes in the hen house. And so it's time to wake up, but you know what? With all of with this year, this year we all began with vision boards and resolutions to have our own personal 2020 vision. But you know what? It wasn't about our personal vision. It was about humanity's vision. And so the whole, the whole COVID thing, this is waking people up. Television will never be the same. Hollywood will never be the same. Sports will never be the same. Our government will never be the same. This is the this is a year I used to think, you know, as we transition from Pisces, which was, you know, patriarchal and duality, dual conflict into Aquarius, which is energy, feminine, unity, collaboration. I thought it was going to be rainbows and unicorns. But let's face it, any transition, any transformation is more like the subduction zone of a plate tectonic event, right? And so that's what we're seeing. It's happening whether we like it or not. And so many of us are awakening, many of us. And so, so I lead the uh, weekly meditation of a group of folks who come because what, what do we know? We know there are studies, the Maharishi effect, that when people get together and collectively meditate, they can reduce uh, disease, they can reduce crime. There are non-local impacts where, from collective action. And so many of us are waking up into this fifth dimensional thing where love is in our heart space, compassion for our fellow human beings who cares about this, this pop culture stuff that has you know absolutely zero to do with anything but to lull us into a sleep. And so whether we like it or not, it's happening. And when enough of us, when we get to critical mass, we'll lift the others who may or may not be aware of it. And institutions are changing. And, at, you know, as are social institutions and political institutions, the change must come from ourselves first. And we must open our eyes and become aware to the illusion and the corruption. They, we, were, we weren't minding the store while big banks are just robbing, you know, uh, they're in bed with the politicians, the banks, the corporations. I, you know, all of my worldview was destroyed this year, <laughs> you know? I'm really glad I had the opportunity to help my parents uh, in 2018 uh, transition because I'm glad they didn't see this world. They, they grew up in a different world. My dad was in World War II. My mom, you know, the depression, she taught me how to cook with very little more than bacon grease and, and flour and I can make all kinds of stuff. So, you know what I mean? I'm glad, I'm glad they transitioned. They lived long lives into their 80s and 90s. I'm glad they didn't see this because it's ugly and nasty and brutish. But on the other side is amazing. And what we, what we have to do is keep love in our heart space. All right. I think it's absolutely necessary what we're going through. Um, 
I'm a little bit disappointed that it's taken us a little longer than Thomas Jefferson said when it comes to the revolution, you know, 25 years should yeah. be a revolution every 25 years. So um, I, I'm, you know, disappointed that that's taken us longer and that we don't really pay attention too much. One of the people I was talking to said, you know, the thing is, is that people have created this, this world in which you have to be active 40 hours a week, minimum 40, 60, 80 hours of work, and they don't have time for public service they don't, anymore. They don't have time because both parties in, of you know, family, both husband and wife are working. And so nobody has any time anymore to pay attention to anything other than survival. And when I hear somebody say, I'm woke, or he's woke, or we're woke, but they're not. And, you know, I'm like, I, I, I get, I get the, the thought of I'm woke, but there's 70 million people who think that they're woke up on one side and another 70 million who think that they woke up on the other side and none of them get that none of them are woke yet. Like they're not, they're still just preaching the same storyline that either echo chamber is uttering versus their own storyline based on their own beliefs because they can't have their own beliefs anymore because they've been programmed their beliefs based on their echo chamber, which is typically social media or news or whatever that is that they watch, right? And so I look at this because, you know, as a hypnotherapist, as a, as a, um, somebody who is well trained in the subconscious mind, in the places that we don't like to go, right? My question is, is it possible without massive destruction, which is typically what happens before a transition into something more beautiful, you get a fire before a forest is fertilized, right? Um, is it possible at this point without massive destruction to get people back to a place where critical thinking, nuanced thinking, common sense, looking, you know, and being an active participant in our government, in our politics, in our society, in our block? I mean, you could go out my street and nobody's hanging out on the block anymore. You know, I'm sure that ha that's happening all over the country. Block parties aren't happening. Communities aren't getting together. Is it possible without massive destruction to, to get the subconscious mind to shift that drastically in time for what we need in order to shift this? Or is it just going to be played out as it plays out? Well, it will play out as it is meant to be. And if we try and rush it, there's a great, there's a great uh, Chinese concept, the Chinese Taoist concept of Wu Wei. It translates to non-action, but it's not non-action. It's no action until the action is right. And then when, when you wait till the time is right, then you act in flow and it's amazing, right? But if we rush, if we force, if we cajole, you're gonna have a, a perverted outcome. So we wait until the time is right. And so it's gonna be, a, we're watching it now. It's happening now, it's crumbling around our feet. It's like the tower card in tarot. 
It, but what the great, what people miss in the tarot tower card is the laser-like focus with which we emerge. You see, so newspapers have been dying a slow, agonizing death for 10 years. And it's being sped up now. And so too is the news, what we consider the nightly news, the, the, even the 24-7 news. It's, it's devolved into a food fight. <laughs> and it will not survive the current. It, it will not It will not survive the current. And so, you know, Democracy in America, written by Alexis de Tocqueville in 1832, he marveled at Americans' propensity to associate. We associate in all. So when when to your to your point about people are too busy, both parents are working. There is enough time to do what we want to do. Well, you can tell what's important to people by how they organize their life. You see, all the jabber in the world doesn't mean an amount to a hill of beans if your actions are showing something completely different. So there is enough time to do what's important to us. And as we, as we emerge, there's going to be some pain. And we're in the middle of the pain. It's not a pleasant time right now. And, but people are awakening to the notion of that they've been asleep and that because they've been asleep, the, the autopilot has flown us in a very bad direction. And we've abdicated our responsibility to people who, who are crooks, basically, who don't have our best interests in mind. And so there, it will emerge through our association. So maybe, it's, maybe we identify with a certain group or, you know, this, but not, uh, what I'm not talking about is identity politics. What I'm talking about is, is things that you like to do and um, so, and you and you hang out with other people who like to do it. And this has been the thing about Americans since our, the beginning. And so, it's through our associations that we will unite and and uh, emerge with a different with a different perspective and a different way of going about things. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I'm kind of excited to see, but I don't think we can rush it, nor should we. And uh, what I think, if we, we remain with that, that gut feeling, that, that intuition, that, um, that discernment, and have our heart spaces filled with love, that's, that's our job. You see, and when enough of us do it, collectively, we'll write our course. Right. So, you know, my, here's my suggestion to people in the audience, whether you're a church group whether you're in a men's group, women's group, business association, friendships, things like that. I'm gonna give you a, a challenge. The challenge is to find five people other than yourself. Figure out what you guys are all passionate about equally and then create a plan for how to actualize that. So I have a friend, her passion is to stop child trafficking. That's her passion. She's got a nonprofit. She's an amazing person. And she has collected a few people around her who also have that same belief. And then they've gone out to start making changes 
right? But once you have that group of five or six, my next challenge is to find another group of five or six that have the exact same passion, maybe different skill sets, but the exact same passion. Connect with them and combine efforts versus having to have the ego of being the only one who's doing, getting the credit for making that change or making that shift. Because to me, the thing that is, and it's a challenge because it's so difficult for people to do this. I want the credit. They want the credit. He wants the credit. Who cares who the credit gets as long as child trafficking is gone, right? As long as bullying is done, as long as, you know, we're not poisoning the water anymore, right? So get people, you, you, you don't want, you know, poison in your, in your food. Okay. Get five people and then have them get five people and then have get five people and create that passion together. That's my challenge. We, we've, been, we've been at this conversation a while. I, I, I'm enjoying myself tremendously, actually. And, and As am I. I love these conversations. Do you have to go anywhere? Do you have any meetings? No. Okay, good. So lobbying, I, I just want to finish this before we go back to uh, you know, the other part. Politicians, you've had dealings with them all. All of them believe that they are, that they're the savior, that they're, that they're a, a good in the world, right? Nobody feels like they're the ones that are causing the policies. They think that the policies that they're creating are for the benefit of society, right? So you've been around them a lot. Is it malicious or is it just a matter of belief that may not be optimal? Is it malicious for money? Is it, you know, or is it just ignorance of, of factual reality? What is it? (laughs) It's some are corrupt from every fiber of their body. Most are people who were popular in school. Uh, they networked heavily. They, uh, they believe in the right thing and they're asked to, to, uh, to serve. And that's how it starts. And most of them arrive bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And it doesn't take long before they're believing their own press releases. And the self-aggrandizement, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. You know, we've created a professional core of elected officials who get very used to entitlement. And if they'd only learn grace, you see the self-justification melts away in the face of grace but they are all about self-justification. They're doing the people's business. Now, now I'm, you know, I, the end justifies the mean because, you know, I'm helping people. Well, you're helping yourself first. I mean, this whole entitlement thing, uh, this professional class of politicians, it's, it's toxic. And they, 
they believe they're good people, but in order to survive, it requires corrupt action. You have to look the other way. You have to, you have to um, subordinate your own beliefs and your, your own conscience for the party and the cause and the money and the highlights. It's just, you know, it's corrupt and it's both sides. And, you know, every two years I, I would campaign and I'm like, it's going to be different. We're going to win this time. And it's going to be different. Well, never different. They get in, they play the game. Right. So as a Marine and, and I'm, I'm bringing it back to this because I've had a lot of friends in the military. Um, one of my close friends was a POW for five years in Vietnam and uh, ended up in prison for 15 years thereafter because of police uh, brutality on him. Uh, mind you, he, he, you know, he learned how to do opium really well in, in Vietnam. So you know, he wasn't perfect, but uh, he led a team of five men into Cambodia and just you know, an amazing human being. But when I used to talk to him, I, I would ask him the question, is this the country that you fought for? And so I'm gonna ask you as a Marine, because there's a lot of military people who, who might listen to this and I want, I want them to have a voice because I've dealt with a lot of VA. I've worked at the VA in LA, PTSD work, a lot of deep emotional release. So is this the country as a Marine that you fought for? And if it is, or if it's not, <laughs> what about it is or not? And how do you see service in the military or for any government position, whether it's Peace Corps or charitable work or whatever, as a place where we can come back to creating a country that would be worthy of fighting for. Um, and, I, and I'll just preface it with one more thing if I remember, because it was just on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> but uh, if it's worth fighting for, what needs to happen now so that our military members who are sacrificing everything can feel in their hearts like, they're doing this not for the paycheck, not that it's much of a paycheck, but they're doing it for a country that's worth fighting for. If you've traveled the world, you know that there are people who are dying to get here. That hasn't changed. The ideals that the, this country was founded on are still the ideals that this country was founded on. We've been asleep and allowed gangsters to take over. And it is the country that I wrote a blank check for up to and including my life for. It's the country that my father served in World War II for. What we need to do is return 
to the sense of belonging that the greatest generation didn't need to be taught. We, we become selfish and distracted and asleep. And as a result, uh, you know, we've lost our way. The corruption, I mean, the pay to play, you know, I, I could go into details, but I, you know, everyone has their own politics. If we get, if we devolved into politics, you, you're going to offend somebody. And, but um, you know, the, the pay to play and it's on both sides, but that, that has severely tarnished our institutions and it's based on greed and the, the back to the notion of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so there are millions who have served and they continue to serve you know part of part of the problem is geopolitical dynamics you know we made a deal in the 70s when we went off the gold standard and petroleum was traded in the dollar and in order and what does that do what do we get for that that strengthens the us dollar and our currency is strengthened because the world trades in it but what did we have to put up for that we had to put up our military and become the cop of the world to trans to safeguard uh, the, the transportation of, of petroleum right and so people so, i don't think a lot of people know that 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 and so was the beginning of of that it was also the end of the draft which is the other question i had for you which is i believe that we should have some form of public service be mandatory whether it be a draft whether it be you know peace corps whatever i believe that some kind of service when you're 18 19 20 you know in those that age range ish area in order to teach people reteach people about service to their fellow man totally agree you know i hated every minute of the marine corps but i wouldn't trade it for the life of me and i i maybe i didn't hate every minute of it but you know what i mean it wasn't the, it wasn't the most pleasant no thing. no it's not but, but how many people do you still know that were your brothers back then? Uh, there's a handful and, and, and we're tight. And, um, and it, even if I didn't know them, then all they got to know is that they were a Marine and that, that, that's all that matters. And, and listen, when I, when I got out and I, and I went into the, into uh, the, the professional working world, my suit was pressed. My shoes were shined. My hair was cut. And people, you, you walk with a bearing that people recognize immediately. I didn't need to tell people that I was prior military. It just, you could just tell. And um, it, it behooved me immensely throughout my career. Um, I believe a, a national service of some sort, it doesn't have to be military, but so, so many people like, learn how to be a man or a woman for that matter, you know? I, I had a little sewing kit. <laughs> I can I sew buttons. I got like the, the self sufficiency that go, that goes, you know, from it's just. I I found it really fascinating that um, Gillette and the single use razor was a military requirement 
for all soldiers in World War II because they needed to be able to shave because their their helmets and their things weren't fitting on them properly, like the gas masks and stuff. And so they had to have a shaving kit. It was required part of the gear. <laughs> you know, it's a, oh, yeah. how much is you know, <laughs> Do you know that I have, I shave every day, not very much, but uh, with my Gillette track two that it was issued to me in the Marine Corps boot camp, I, it's still... <laughs> it still works anyway it's just kind of funny it's it, it teaches you how to adult and you know it's a lost art so i think you know we could benefit immeasurably from it awesome thank you so much for that i i i know i kind of go on these conversations off the tangents and here and there but i i do that because i actually don't want it to be just an interview. I want it to be a conversation that can uplift, that can, you know, put a fire under somebody's ass that can make them know that there's actionable things that they can do to change their life today. I mean, so many people feel so hopeless, helpless. I know in my life, um, Suicide was always an option. I had 28 friends commit suicide in my life, and that was always an option. Um, my brother asked me once why I believe in God. I said, because if I didn't, I'd be dead. Because if I didn't believe that there was something higher than me, I wouldn't believe that there was a purpose for me. And therefore, there's no reason to experience the amount of pain that I've had to experience in my life, right? And I know that that's not an unusual way of looking at life right now. That especially during some of these times, there's been such a spike in the mental illness, in abuse, in the house, in suicide, in all these things. And so towards the end of this conversation, I just wanted to lead it back there because I want people to have tricks and tools and tips and things that they can do to make their life better, to make their communities better, to make their relationships more rich and vibrant and lively so that suicide is not even in their consciousness as an option because they always know there's somebody out there to help. There's some kind of hope, some kind of thing that they could do. And so I wanted to bring it back there. And I want you to just talk about that a little bit, um, you know, as a subconscious mindfulness healing coach person, I know that, that this is some of the stuff you have to deal with every single day. Love. Love is our birthright. Love is God energy. Love energy equals God energy, whatever, by whatever name you call God, the divine. Having love in your heart space is your birthright. It's why you're here. And so, so often people wonder, why am I here? Why do I, these are all lessons. We're here. We signed up. Our soul, souls are eternal. We live, we are eternal souls living a temporary biological existence in this very dense frequency that's known as earth. And emotion li li lives here. People, souls come here to learn about 
emotion because this is the only place that exists in the universe. And so each of these things are a lesson. I often find myself when I'm in my next embarrassing moment, let me learn the lesson quickly. <laughs> and you know, what's, where's the lesson? Let me learn it quickly, find the lesson, learn it quickly, move on to my next embarrassing moment. But as long as we see it that way, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about the, the email I got from the guy who'd read my book and, and credited the book with, you know, having five months of chemo uh, holiday. And I, I asked myself, why did I get cancer? Why, why me? I had all this, I had this great life, I thought. I had this great life, why did I have to get cancer? What's... And so the meaning of the cancer was to push through, to find my true essential purpose in life to be in the service of others using the power of the subconscious mind, leading with love. And when I realized that the message of my cancer was to pull me out of a cesspool and put me into a loving space helping others. When people leave my office, they float out of here feeling better. And that just, that lifts me up. That, that's my reason for living. And so the, the pain of the cancer emotional and physical, the fear was to direct me to my essential purpose, to my soul's purpose. And once I realized that, I stopped asking why. Why did this happen? Well, it was a lesson that I needed to learn and look what I, I learned it. And thank goodness I did. And I did, I learned it and it brought me to my soul's purpose. And so when you see that the pain is a lesson, then you dedicate yourself to learning what, the, what is the lesson here? Make it a game. Now it's a game. What is this pain teaching me? What, what should I learn so that I can move to the next lesson? That's what life is. It's a series of lessons. And if we get hung up on one and give up, then what is this is what leads us to what's the purpose of life? Well, you forgot what the purpose of life was. You forgot that it's a series of lessons. So get in the game and learn the lesson and move on to the next one. It may be painful. You may skin your knee. It may hurt your feelings. But you know you're alive. And you, you then, what's the lesson here? Let me learn it quickly so that I can move on to the next lesson. That's why we're here. We're here to learn lessons so that our souls can evolve. If you get hung up on, this is painful, you miss that there's a lesson and you miss the point of life. Yep. And when you remember, if you just fix in your mind that the point of life is to be here and to learn lessons and for our soul to grow and expand. And in so doing, it expands others by our example, right? And so it's in this way that we give meaning and value to our life by understanding that this pain, there's some, there's a lesson. Remember my favorite, oh, my favorite. The little boy who goes down the hallway and opens the door to his room and is full of horse poop. You know what he said? There's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so you see what I mean? Right. So, so bring, in the, bring in the discernment from your gut. The discernment of, from your gut, what to then ask the question, what's the lesson here? 
Let me learn it quickly so I can move to the next lesson. The next lesson may be painful, accept it. Accept that it may be painful and learn it too. And at some point the sun begins to rise and the lessons are less painful, but now you're a teacher. Now you've had your shamanic journey and now you become a teacher for others. And that's what mine and yours, I, I, I hear your story and I, I'm similar. You know, there was a, there was pain. There, there was pain, and I've I've surveyed all of the all of the major religions. I've, I've trekked in, in Nepal and studied Buddhism at the Monkey Temple. I, I my my girlfriend is from China, and we we study Taoism. You know, uh, you talk about wanting to come to this country. I, I have she's a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and she, you know she she came here from China, and I know a lot of her friends who've come here from China. They People are eager to come to this country. It's still the things that it was founded on are still. And so using our discernment and keeping love in our heart space and understanding that what may seem painful is a lesson and asking to learn the lesson quickly so that we might move on to the next. This is the meaning of life. That's awesome. All right. Three. Count them. Three tips, tricks, actionable steps that can be immediately implemented for anyone listening to this? Well, I have to apologize. We, we covered them in, in this wide ranging, but I'll, I'm going to recap them here for you. Cool. Breathe, 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 breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Do the box breathing if you need to. These are tactics that they, they teach people who are in high stress. And so breathing resets the autonomic nervous system. So anytime you're in a moment of stress, a deep breath into your nose. Caveat. Out your mouth. I have a caveat for that. Breathe in through okay. your nose, not in through your mouth. When you breathe in through your mouth, you excite your adrenal glands. When you breathe in through your nose, you calm your adrenal glands, thereby taking yourself out of fight or flight and into a more balanced, relaxed state. It's really good, by the way, for people who have massive anxiety disorders. Absolutely. In through the nose, out through the mouth. Number two is love. Love is your birthright. It resides in your heart center. And if any moment you don't feel that you're feeling loving in your heart center, you're feeling fear. And that fear can beget so many other negative emotions and all it's really as simple as fixing in your mind an icon that represents love for you and then just imagining it in your heart space and bringing yourself into a place of love now i in my spiritual journey i have i have done i have um done a number on my ego it used to be pretty big when i was a lobbyist and i have reduced that ego to a very, very small. Now I just want to help people in the shortest amount of time. And that has become, I want to be really good at what I do. But so in moments where I feel that ego creeping back in, I just come back to a place of love. I see a red rose. I see my little girl's face. You know, there, there are these things that just bring me immediately. My holding my mom's hand as she breathed her last breath. And I, I was able to take her through hospice. And that just that moment, she brought me in. I escorted her out and I was so grateful for that opportunity. But these are the things that represent love and I bring that and fear melts away. So fear, love, not fear. And it's as really as easy as that. And the third thing is back to Dr. Frankel. 
you are so powerful and you leak your power the moment you react to somebody without thought. So remember between space, the space between action and reaction, stimulus and response is your power because you get to decide what kind of human being you want to be. Those three things, they don't cost any money. They're easy to remember. And the upside for you is immeasurable. That's awesome. I, I have, I, I like to add caveats to things. I have a, a, a thing about ego because I don't think that ego is this nasty thing that everybody seems to think it is. To me, the, the nastiness is when the ego is above the commitment, thereby pushing the commitment down. When you have it the other direction and your commitment is here and your ego is pushing your commitment, to me, that's where you want to be because you want that ego, that identity to push your passion, to push your commitment forward, to be competitive with yourself, not with others, but with yourself to be better you every time. And your commitment is here. So that ego is, is the power that's underneath. It's like the wind beneath my wings, right? So the ego is that wind, but my wings is the commitment. Absolutely. Everything, everything serves a, a purpose. And so, I mean, my business is Norman Plotkin Hypnotherapy. I mean, you can, I can't remove myself from my ego and I'm pushing, I'm pushing my commitment. It's the same thing with liberty and responsibility, right? My liberty ends where yours begins. And I, I enjoy liberty because I have the responsibility to, to you know, use it in a, in a positive way, right? So absolutely, I, we don't want no ego. We just want it in check under yeah. our commitment. Yeah. And so Norman, how can people get a hold of you if, if they want to get a hold of you? I'm at normanplotkin.com, N-O-R-M-A-N-P-L-O-T-K-I-N.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Norman Plotkin Inc., Facebook, Norman Plotkin Inc., uh, uh, Instagram, Norman Plotkin CHT. I'm, all, I'm at Norman Plotkin for Twitter. I don't use that one very much, but. Is there a lot of you? Because I know there's no more Ari Groniches on the planet other than this one. So there's, is there any other Norman Plotkins? <laughs> there are, believe it or not. There's a dentist in Monterey. There's a couple of attorneys. Yeah, there are other Norman Plotkins. Who knew? In, uh, you know, my grandfather came from the Ukraine in uh, 1903. Uh, it turns out it means fishermen, you know, on the Black Sea, there, you know, there's a lot of them. So uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, there, there are, but none of, none of them are hypnotherapists. Gotcha. All right. So audience, if you'd like to get a hold of Norman, you can reach him at normanplotkin.anywhere.com, basically anywhere you, uh, you want to look social media wise or Facebook or normanplotkin.com. So I really enjoyed this conversation, Norman. Thank you so much for being here. And you have given a tremendous value to our guests or to our audience. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And this is Ari Gronich. This has been another episode of Create a New Tomorrow, where we are teaching you tips and tricks to create a new tomorrow today. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. 
I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.